What inspired people to start moving to Florida? After all, it wasn't always strip malls, resorts, theme parks, and golf courses. Florida was pretty rough before all that development. Hot, swampy, seemingly inhospitable to human habitation. But some people saw its raw beauty and its potential as a marketable paradise. Harriet Beecher Stowe, whom you might know as the author of the classic novel Uncle Tom's Cabin, was an early champion of Florida. Today I'll discuss Stowe's lesser-known work, promoting Florida tourism and relocation, Palmetto Leaves, with Debbie Lilakis, Associate Professor of English at Florida Institute of Technology. I'm Christopher Nick. Join us for this episode of Florida Book Club. I'm here with Debbie Lilekis, Associate Professor of English at Florida Institute of Technology and author of the 2015 book, American Literature, Lynching, and the Spectator in the Crowd, Spectacular Violence. Dr. Lilekis examines literary depictions of the witnessing and reporting of racial violence and the notion of community in 19th and early 20th century American fiction in her work, and we will be discussing the notion of community here today with her as we look at Harriet Beecher Stowe's 1873, uh, is it a memoir, travel guide? Anyway, her 1873 book, Palmetto Leaves, one of the first efforts to champion Florida as a place to visit or relocate to. So welcome to Florida Book Club. I, I, I wanted to start by saying, I mean, most people know Harriet Beecher Stowe from Uncle Tom's Cabin, you know, the, the pre-Civil War novel that really galvanized people against slavery. At least that's how it's popularly remembered. But um, it's the book that most people have heard of. But why, is, uh, why do you think Palmetto Leaves is important to the history and development of Florida? specifically like what would what would we get out of it in that regard i think too i mean like you said it is something that people know of her they know her name they associate with uncle tom's cabin whether they have have read the text or not and so sometimes people are surprised to know that she had anything to do with florida in fact just um, i'm here recording in the library and just before i came upstairs i was talking to one of the librarians about what she, your project is and she had no idea that Harry Beecher Stowe had anything to do with Florida. So I think just as a curiosity, I think that that draws people's attention when they hear Stowe, Florida, I wanna know more about that. Um, and then once you start actually reading some of her sketches, I think that people find her descriptions fascinating, um, whether they see in those sketches something that they can relate to or just even the novelty of how she just her her tone and how she's talking to sort of these potential uh, tourists from the north and what things people might have wanted to know at that time period that might have interested them in Florida and so I think that that's interesting for us as current residents or tourists or snowbirds of Florida to see how other people uh, saw Florida during that time period before the boom of tourism and what we know today. Yeah, no, I, hey, look, I'm a sucker for landscape and nature descriptions. So I, I loved reading this book too. I, and, and that's this, that's something I was curious about. What was this area of Florida like where she was Mandarin, this, this, you know, city in the, in the or city is probably pretty generous. Uh, this, right. <laughs> yeah. Town settlement community in, in the Northern part of the state. What was it like at the time of the book's publication? Right. So, I mean, even going back a little bit before that, so we have to remember Florida didn't even become a state until 1845, right? Um, and then, so then a couple decades later is when we're talking about Stowe coming to Florida. So to give you a sense, um, Florida, uh, like if we consider the 1870 census, Florida was counted about 187,748 residents. So yeah, that makes Florida at the time, it was the least populated state in the region. 
So this is the kind of Florida that Stowe is finding, you know, as she comes. Um, in some parts of the state, you could travel miles without seeing another person. So Florida was sort of this vast frontier containing small groups of people from all sorts of different origins and social classes. And I think, you know, we tend to think about the vast frontier of the West, right, going going west across the United States, the Mountain West, and California, and the Pacific Ocean, but Florida was also a frontier, you know, in its own sense, and so this is the kind of Florida that Stowe encounters. Um, before the Civil War, people traveling to the state, uh, it was, the number was relatively small. Most people came, like, for health reasons or for adventure, of course. Hunting drew people here, see exotic things like alligators, um, the whole fountain of youth myth, you know, associated with St. Augustine. So there were some people drawn, but it was in much smaller numbers before the Civil War. So um, by the, that was changing right, by the era that Stowe was coming, and she really helped to, to um, draw in this influx of visitors because they were reading about these sketches that she was writing about her observations of Florida. Yeah, that, I, I, I keep forgetting, like, it's easy to lose sight of now, like the fountain of youth, how that might, you know, which seems like just like a historical curiosity right. now. But it, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, so how did Stowe discover Mandarin, this, this community that she lived in, and what drew her to the state? So her reasons for coming to the state were a little bit more complex than just, you know, your average person coming here for adventure, for health. Uh, she began to seriously consider North Florida as a winter residence after visiting her son, Frederick. Um, by 1866, she had already helped her son rent some land to provide work opportunities actually for freed slaves. And so she visited in March and April of 1867. And she, the area that she fell in love with though was Mandarin. And so her initial idea, she talked to her brother, Charles Beecher. She wanted to establish a church um, along the St. John's River. He didn't actually agree to be a clergyman in that proposed church, but he also did come to Florida though. He settled in a different area in the, uh, along the St. Mark's River, about 20 miles from Tallahassee. And then Stowe, of course, famously bought her cottage on land overlooking the St. John's River in Mandarin. And interestingly, her house became one of the most photographed residences in the community. Um, at the time when she was living there, steamboats would go by and people would want to catch a glimpse of where you know, where she lived and hoping to see her. Um, people became more aggressive <laughs> as time went on. And it sort of ironically became, I think, an annoyance to her and to her family that people started to, once a dock was built, people would actually come and try to, to come up to her house and try to see her, um, talk to her. People, there was even a, a story about somebody, you know, ripping a branch off of a tree in front of her cottage. Um, so it's interesting how she, her, you know, her um, celebrity, because of, because everybody knew of her from her writing Uncle Tom's Cabin, people wanted to see her. And so some people were drawn, you know, drawn in just because of her. And then, then from that, her writings in Palmetto leaves attracted people to the state itself, and they asked her for advice about you know, where to buy land and, you know, advice about living in Florida. Wow, yeah, I, I, that's nuts. She was a legit celebrity. 
was. <laughs> in yeah. a way that writers, few writers are anymore, I guess. You yeah, know. I can't, I can't imagine. I mean, I've seen the area where, you know, where her cottage was and such, and I can't imagine people just um, coming up and, and, and just literally walking up, boldly walking up to her cottage and, and wanting to catch a glimpse of her and talk to her. Um, that's, that's wild. Uh, we think of that as like in modern, as modern celebrities, you know, um, getting accosted by paparazzi and such but she really li did live that so even even though florida was not you know even that populated at the time um ironically her getting people interested in florida brought those people to come and see her out too <laughs> and you alluded to that the, that a lot of the content in the book was published previously to its mm -hmm. publication as a book like yeah, she did. She began writing about Florida first. Um, so, she, so she came down to Mandarin, and then in 1869, she began to write some articles for uh, magazines. The first one was for one called Hearth and Home, and then later she was writing for Christian Union, which was a magazine that uh, one of her other brothers, Henry Ward Beecher, had bought and transformed. So she begins with those sketches and these articles uh, in magazine form, and then a lot of those sketches get collected into what became Palmetto Leaves. Um, so in 1873, the book collection was, was published. But by 1881, she had actually written over 50 pieces on Florida. So Palmetto Leaves is one collection of that, and, and that's oh. the one that we're most familiar with. But um, if we look at all of these different articles in some of the periodicals, it, it totals over 50. Wow. I'm curious, too, what, what effect or influence had, like, what was its reception when it was first published? I mean, because as you say, I mean, did, did it have a tangible effect or influence on people like tourists or visitors, people relocating to the state? Yeah, it did. Um, Palmetto Leaves became really an overnight bestseller, which might seem unusual to us now because so many people have forgotten about it and, and really only think about Uncle Tom's Cabin. But it really was a bestseller. And a year after the publication of the book, um, a number uh, the number of tourists coming to the state uh, nearly tripled. So just some of the some of the historical um, resources about that say about about tripled of the amount of tourists. So she had that has to be you know in some part uh, an effect of her writing that really interested people and made people want to come and see this land that she writes about. Uh, they wanted to experience it for them for themselves. Um, Palmetto leaves has become became during that time period what a lot of people think was probably the first unsolicited promotional writing about um, Florida and getting northern tourists to come to the state. Yeah, that, that was actually going to be my next question. I mean, how many people had really written about the state in those kind of terms? Or, or... I think that her voice was unique in this creation because there had been some other, and we can talk later about uh, you know a few other books um, around the same time uh, that were published and even a little bit before, but her writing was unique, partly in the form, because as you alluded to, you know, in the beginning, sort of, what is this? Is this a memoir, travel writing? She alludes to letters. So she's, sometimes she's like responding to letters that she says that she's received. So it's kind of this interesting mix, um, which is different than some of the other writing uh, that came out around that time period. But also in the narrative voice that she creates is different. She speaks in Palmetto Leaves uniquely as herself. And other people writing about Florida during this time period, it's usually done um, through a more, uh, if it's a fictional account, like a, it's like a male adolescent 
voice as the narrator. Uh, so there's some examples of that. Uh, and, and because of that, I think the focus a lot of times is on like adventure and hunting and fishing. Um, whereas her book, it's, it's herself. And so that was the draw. People were interested to know what she had to say about Florida and her observations. All right. What do you think, I, in kind of lieu of that, like you were talking about like uh, at the time, contemporaneously to its publication, what would contemporary readers today, you think, what does it have to offer to them? I think that contemporary readers, uh, first of all, they might be interested to, to kind of probe, see and see what the text is all about because of that, because people are so unaware that she had anything to do with with Florida and, and um, stirring up any, you know, tourism, the tourism boom. So just that in and of itself, I think, might draw people to it. But then the text itself, I think that people might be interested in how depictions of Florida have changed over time. Because she doesn't just talk about Florida as you know, a paradise. I mean, there are parts of her sketches where she does describe, you know, some of the lushness and, and, but there are also things that are, she has sections that are very practical. She talks about like the weather and things to expect if you decide to come uh, and, and stay in Florida. And so I think seeing uh, a depiction of Florida and show, kind of showing how it's been portrayed in, in ways that people aren't maybe as familiar with. So in you know her depictions, we have everything from you know a frontier land to a tourist destination. Um, so we can kind of see that uh, the, the depiction of, of how Florida has changed over time. So it might surprise people to not just see Florida depicted in the way that we do you know, in our contemporary culture. So I think that would be a draw for contemporary readers to see that history. Yeah, as I said, not just landscapes, but I like, you know, historical windows too. Again, I'm speaking to my tastes, so yeah. I can't really <laughs> speak to that. But yeah, I, I found that, like you're saying, the book, I guess I called it contradictions. It seems to be full of that, but she has this quote near the beginning that, you know, like talking about how visitors are sometimes disappointed by it, but mm -hmm. it, she says like a piece of embroidery, it has yes. two sides to it. One side all ragtag and thrums without order, or position and the other showing flowers and arabesques and brilliant coloring both these sides exist and i thought that really set a tone for you know uh, uh not just like the rest of the book but you know i mean i, I think a lot of people view florida that way now today mm -hmm. you know in, in a sense yeah. yeah that's one of my favorite quotes actually um <laughs> from the piece um and when i gave a conference presentation on stowe and florida Florida literature, and I use part of that as my title. That's a sort of Florida as tapestry, kind of alluding to that embroidery quote, because I think that is that does really sort of encapsulate what she's doing in the sketches too. She there are plenty of sketches where it makes you really long for this, you know, this beautiful place that uh, she's describing and want to experience it yourself. I could see where northern tourists reading some of her sketches would be really intrigued and want to come see that for themselves. But then there are other sketches where she talks about things like you said that might people might find disappointing. So she gives like some realistic depictions of Florida. So that sort of both sides of the tapestry, I think that, that encapsulates 
how she wants to depict palmetto leaves and that that was unique that was different than what other people had done and maybe what other people have done since so i think that idea too that she urges her readers to I think there's one point where she says to accept certain deficiencies is the language she uses right um that it's that's necessary in order for you to be able to to be successful in florida to or to uh, come to florida and not be um, too disappointed and, and want to turn back. Um, so that notion that Florida is not just one thing, it's not just a, a, you know, a land of paradise, but there are things that come with that, trade-offs that come with that, um, that you have to be aware of. And so I think that that is also part of her unique qualities in this text is that she does show both sides of the tapestry. Yeah, I mean, it's not a typical Chamber of Commerce sort of ad that is like relentlessly positive. I mean, I, I remember some of these descriptions about like in talking about, you know, the swamps are jungles by springtime. And here, this is this is a, a, lying over a foul sink of the blackest mud, a layer of moccasins where foot of man cares not to tread. You know, that's not very flattering, I suppose. Right. But I mean, then, you know, if not long after that, she says, language cannot do justice to the radiance, the brightness, the celestial calm and glory of these spring days. You know, basically the same season, same place, but, but mm -hmm. sort of saying that, yeah. which, I, which I was I was really struck by. And I like too how there are some sections too where she begins a lot of times with uh, a letter saying, I got, I got a letter where someone asked about this, or I overheard someone making this observation. And then she sort of then responds to that. There's one whole section where she's talking about flowers and she begins that yes. section by saying that she overhears someone who's dressed, a, a lady that's dressed very finely. And she is complaining that she's like, I thought Florida was supposed to be the land of flowers. I haven't seen any. And she asks the woman, well, have you actually gone for walks? like out in the wilderness and she's like well of course not <laughs> I'm a lady and so she says you know it's kind of her way of saying well you have to you have to get out there and see Florida you know um it's not going to just be this um you know this paradise set forth in front of you um you have to go and actually experience real Florida and so I think in that way um again that's sort of a unique uh, a new, unique take um that wasn't necessarily something that other people were doing at the time yeah, um, you compare it to like present day promotional videos and, mm -hmm. and, and, and publications and you don't see a whole lot of like, you know, equivocation like that, I, mm -hmm. I, I think. There's a, there's also like like sections here where, um, you know, she's like I, I noted, she seemed to encourage bringing in non-native and invasive plants to sort of remake and, and, and do things like that. But she also has this section where I remember she was really angered about like sport people sport hunting gators like there's a scene where like this um she was really galled by this um juvenile alligator that had been shot and killed and it's mm -hmm. it's it's interesting to juxtapose that with with some of the you know very prescriptive things she puts out for like trying to remake the environment though too which which again to me you know at the time i was reading it seemed sort of at odds i guess but maybe that's a current sensibility about the environment that mm -hmm. you know they may not have had in the 1870s yeah i don't i don't think she was intending for it to be contradictory, but I think that that the the sections where she where she's really passionate about you know the environment and animals and in particular I think are some of the most interesting and strongest sections. Um, you know she talks really passionately about 
um, birds, right? And yes, that's like something that's hawks. an yeah, and that's an example that really did have um, you know real world impact. Her um, making people aware of that, um, sort of exposing that, especially during the time period when she's living, you know, um, the the killing of of birds for their feathers for things like hat ladies hats and such was really popular and so she really did a good job of I think exposing that and how horrible that was and how if that keeps going on we're going to lose countless species of birds because of this and so she draws attention to that issue and it had actual real world implications I think it was by 1901 that there was actually legislation in Florida uh, to protect some of these birds so even though some of that you know might have taken a while she got the ball rolling I think on some of these issues um, bringing people's attention to it that Florida wasn't just a place to to come and take things you know and just do whatever you wanted um, that you had to think about the um, you know the implications of that behavior over hunting and um, you know over overfishing um, overfishing and all these things are going to have you know real world consequences and so she brought that attention I think through uh, some of her sketches yeah, I mean, you see that sort of replay in the in the mid 20th century when alligators were hunted almost to extinction and they needed a, an act, right. you know, an endangered species act mm-hmm. to bring them back to what they are now, too. I mean, that's right. seems to be a weird trend. Would you consider this, a, this sort of a final question to wrap up this part, I guess, a little bit with would you consider this a, like a work of environmentalism in a way or, or is it is it like could we could you read it in that tradition? I think you could. I mean, I think you might have to focus focus on certain parts. Um, that's certainly, I think that's certainly in there. Um, that that's something that you could that you could get out of it. And that might might be another thing that might be attractive to more contemporary readers to focus on that angle of it. The ecology of yeah. the state, mm-hmm. then. Yeah. And of course, I mean, her you know her impact. It's 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 crosses lots of different arenas. I mean, she has an impact, um, obviously, on tourism. She, you know, she spurs on this influx of, of tourists, you know, to the state, which was during a time of economic d- depression in the 1870s. So that was certainly beneficial for the economy. Um, like I said, she brought issues of, um, you know, issues relating to agriculture and preservation of animals. She brings those things up. Um, but also just economically too, uh, she brings, um, her, so part of what her book does is sort of, uh, catalogs the history of the citrus production in the state too. I mean, she has a lot to say about that and as well as her being interested in it herself and trying, trying out a little bit that, uh, of, uh, citrus interest, industry herself, but, uh, sort of preserving the history of that. Um, and that was one of the things too, besides tourism, that was important economically for the state. Uh, so the, the citrus industry, you know, helps to transform property values and that increased property values and that money was available then for schools. And um, and she was instrumental in, um, in, in wanting to make sure that education was available, especially to, you know, these uh, freed slaves. Um, so education and, you know, religious education as well, these things so it sort of all builds upon each other her influences um these in different areas and we're all connected um back to some of the things that she had to say in palmetto leaves
Now, I know that you also study other forgotten or obscure books from this period in Florida. Are there any ones that you would particularly recommend or are worth checking out for in interested readers that maybe, you know, don't have the, the name brand cachet of being written by Harry Beecher Stowe? <laughs> right, yeah. And I think, um, I think I would probably say that some of the adventure type stories of, um, of the mid 19th century might be ones to, for people to start with. Um, the one that comes to mind most readily is Francis Robert Golding's The Young Mariners on the Florida Coast. So that one is actually um, you know, predates uh, Stowe's work. So it's 1853. So I think it's one of the earliest, um, possibly one of the earliest. There was a, an unpublished um, manuscript that was also kind of similar to Golding's book um, called A Trip to Florida for Health and Sport by Cyrus Parker's Condit. And that was actually discovered um, uh, fairly recently by a librarian at Rollins College and published. Um, so that was thought to be around circa 1855. So both of those are, you know, so mid 19th century um, books, both featuring boys, um, you know, like I said, that sort of male adolescent voice as their narrator, but fun, um, you know, lots of fun adventure going on in there, particularly with the young Marooners. Um, there are some really fun scenes. Um, one of my favorite scenes from that, just to give people like a little taste of it, is a scene, um, there's lots of scenes with animals, and one where uh, the, there's a group of children, and the, the one girl in the group and her younger brother are, they encounter a bear, and what she does to kind of scare it away um, is, is pretty humorous. Um, yeah, no spoilers. Of, no spoilers, but yeah, there's lots of encounters with different animals, in the you know, Florida wilderness and of course this whole marooned aspect to it um, I think is, is is a fun is a fun angle so those books um, are fun to look at from that time period um, you know there there are other writers like Kirk Monroe right, with his book uh, Wakulla a story of adventure in Florida that's a little bit later that's in 1886 um, so I think some of those sort of adventure type stories um, and just kind of chronicling the experiences of usually these young narrators um, and their encounters in the wilderness. Um, some there's usually featured different like hunting and fishing trips um, and then sort of their antics that happen along the way. So those are, they're quite different than Stowe's work but uh, I think equally important sort of in the the history of, of Florida literature. Yeah, like before it became what we know it today as, I suppose. Yeah. <laughs> much, much <laughs> yeah. different place. Right. All right. Well, Debbie Lilekis, thank you for coming on and talking to us. Welcome. You're now an official member of the Florida Book Club. All right. Thank you. Thanks for having me. It was fun. Thanks for attending this meeting of the Florida Book Club. Join us again next time when we discuss condoms and hot tubs don't mix. <laughs> Sounds interesting, huh? With co-editors Jenny Jarvis and Leslie Salas. If you have any comments, suggestions, rebuttals, or thoughts to share, let us hear from you. And remember to support your local independent bookstores and public libraries. Palmetto Leaves is available through Bookshop, and there are links on our website. See you at the next meeting.